my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Lee Atherton, an international best-selling author and speaker. She is a first responder chaplain and an end-of-life grief and resilience coach with over 15 years of experience. Her passions are to help people live their dying by discovering the beauty in the process and the gifts to be found and to journey with people through the white waters of grief navigating the chaos until they reach the tranquil pool of stillness. Recognizing the unique challenges of professionals who frequently encounter dying and death, Lee offers coaching and training to support them in their ability to rekindle their passion and drive for the work they do. She's an international best-selling author. Uh, she uh, was a contributor to the Game Changer Volume 6. And her latest work is Tossed Pebbles. And we'll uh, talk a little bit about both of those. But first, I'd um, like to thank you, Lee, for coming on and talking with me. And uh, I, you know, I just really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Oh, thank you, Dave. You're doing great work. And it's an honor to be here with you. Awesome. Well, I, I'd like to really get a sense of, of who you are. And I, I I feel the best way to do that is usually start off in the beginning. So uh, where were you born and raised? Marlboro, Massachusetts. Lived here all my life. <laughs> oh. And um, do you have any siblings? I do. I've got three older siblings, enough nice. older than me that I was almost like an only child. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, so what did, your, what did your mom and dad do when you were growing up? What was life like for you? Life was, dad was a teacher. So he was always home after school. And mom uh, worked from home as a medical secretary. So my parents were both around all the time. And uh, it was nice to have them there. Nice to, in ways I was able to be involved in the work they did. Occasionally dad would bring me to school and Mom would help me have me help at the office. How did you get involved with what you're doing now? The um, do you have family or friends that are in the fire service? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, came to it sort of in the back doorway. Uh, I'm a clergy person who uh, works in the local church. I don't serve a local church, but go fill in for vacations and such of other pastors on Sunday mornings. And one of my colleagues had brought in training from the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation for how to respond in times of crisis when there's some major upheaval event or trauma going on. And it was taught by a gentleman who teaches this course to other first responders, fire, police, um, EMS, to be peer-to-peer -peer support in their world. Part of the um, organization Critical Incident Stress Management is chaplains. So it was the same training that he gives to all of them. And I was, I was fascinated. And I thought, I want to be a part of this world and, and help these people who do so much for us. And uh, went on a path to find a, a local fire station that I could be a chaplain at and did that. Joined a couple of CISM teams and really, you know, it's, it's an incredible honor to be at diffusings and debriefings to support 
you folks. And then I have also a uh, Black Lab, Shadow. He's my business partner. And I mentioned him because he and I got certified as a CISM response team. So he comes to those responses with me. Just for, for the listeners, can you explain the your your dog's role in, in those uh, in those situations? Yeah, absolutely. Just to um, provide comfort. Um, you know, he kind of knows when there's someone who's really struggling and shadow will go over. Maybe it's just lay on the person's feet or lay his chin on their lap. Um, or maybe it's his wagging tail that just brings a smile. But when he's with a person, connected to a person, they find themselves patting, and that lowers blood pressure. He's sort of like um, an icebreaker. So if I'm going in and, and with a team that I've not met before, he makes it easier for the people we're supporting to just kind of open up a bit and feel at ease. I've, I've got a, a pretty good friend that when, when she retired from the fire department, well, actually before she retired, she had been working with her dogs to get certified. And, and so she does that same thing that you do and um, just goes around to different stations in the, in the county. And uh, it's, it's not uncommon for her to show up like right after a rough call, just by chance. It's yeah. pretty cool. That is cool. And I'm amazed at what the dogs can do. It, it, it's just mind blowing. I want to talk to you a little bit about your two books. Um, well, first let's talk about the, uh, the, the latest book. Uh, would you, Tossing Pebbles? Tossed Pebbles. It's a Tossed grief pebbles. journal. Yes. So as an end of life um, and grief coach, I wanted to create a tool, a resource for um, my clients who are grieving. And it began as a daily email of support that I send out. And it's each email includes a quote related to grief. And then some words of support or encouragement, you know, just to help you on your journey. And then I took that and with some incredible artwork that was gifted to me by a hospice patient's daughter from years ago, uh, created this journal. And it's um, got the same quotes and words of support, but then three or four questions each day to get you thinking about how things are, how things might change. What can you do to, to step a little bit ahead in your grief? Um, one of them, the quote is, if tears could build a stairway and memories a lane, I'd walk right up to heaven and bring you home again. And then the, the journal questions, what beauty surrounds you today? And describe your stairway describe your lane so questions that just get you thinking there's a couple of questions that that come to mind um you know i throughout my career uh there's been only a gosh like well only about three chaplains that i've interacted with because the the one chaplain that was around for the bulk of my career he was a chaplain for like 40 years mm. so i mean he was there when my dad was there you know uh, yeah <laughs> um and then uh, after he retired uh, another uh individual took over and they added a chaplain so um it wasn't mm. just one person um because i would imagine that's got to be pretty tough uh managing a large area for one um yeah. but in in your experience um 
So this was one of the things that I had thought about because there are, um, especially in a large fire department, there are people that are uh, Christian, uh, Jewish, Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Muslim, um, yeah. Buddhist, or you know, agnostic, atheist, what what have you? What have you? How? Um, can you describe the chaplain's role when there is such a diverse group of beliefs and, and how that, um, how, well, how you manage that? Right. Uh, so the people that I am with, unless they ask me, will never know what faith tradition I'm in. And that's important to me because it's all about you, the person who is wrestling what, with whatever that tough call was that you were on and how that impacts your, part of it is, yes, how it impacts your beliefs and your faith system. But um, a lot of what we experience or what you experience in the fire world really calls into question the bigger picture. What's my purpose here? What's the meaning of life? That unanswerable question, why? And that doesn't need me to wear a particular religious hat. One of the great things here in Massachusetts, uh, I'm a member of Massachusetts Corps of Fire Chaplains. And so yes, there are times when people want something more specifically directed at their faith tradition. And I've got a whole pool of resources. Tell me how I address this. Asking the rabbi, how do, what is a Jewish person's understanding of this and how can I best support my person? We call it the ministry of presence. So just being with someone, creating that safe space where they can talk, share, be silent. Uh, there have been times on calls where the chaplain would show up actually on the scene mm -hmm. and and may even sit with the family of person that we were trying to save and and couldn't and yeah. so they sit with the family and um i always thought that that was uh you know, it was pretty cool. So this is something that I, <laughs> I was wondering, you know, we, we were talking uh, before we began recording um, about the, the CISM training and I, uh, I got certified, um, got, you know, did all the certification stuff. One of the questions that I had is, when when you when a firefighter when a law enforcement officer when a paramedic first comes in as a probationary employee there is zero training on how to prepare them uh for what we witness you know when when we see a father and mother that just lost their baby see their soul break. Right. And you have no skills whatsoever, like unless you used to do that before. I, you know, I mean, I know from my experience, I had zero training. Yeah. Was uh it was it was very tough. You right. absorb that that energy and and almost take on the grief, even though you never met those people before. Right. Yeah. And um, and it always seemed like the chaplains had some innate ability to be empathetic, yet not absorb all of that. I, I know now that chaplains struggle with the very same thing, um, yeah. but 
is there anything that that chaplains uh, go through other than um, like the CISM training? That is an excellent question. And it, it speaks to some of what I teach in terms of um, being able to keep showing up on your job with passion and drive. And that is, it's an overused term and kind of people cringe when they hear it, but I haven't yet found another one. Self-care is crucial. And so in my role as a chaplain, there are a couple of things. Whenever I'm on a debrief or diffusing, we support those folks that we've been sent out for. And when that all finishes, our CISM team has our own debrief. Uh, and I find that really crucial. So we're hearing some, you know, some of the stories that we're hearing. Uh, and we don't just leave that and go home with that. We take time as a team. You know, how are you feeling? What nerve did it hit, if any, right? Um, and then individually, I've got a couple of people that I call. I, they're my two AMers, I call them. Who is it that you can call no matter what time of day or night and just say, hey, I had a really shitty call. I, I need to dump, I need to download. I really like the fact that you're doing the work that you're doing. Uh, I have struggled with the, the thought that um, in, in the fire service, we've got to do training, but I also look back at my mindset as a brand new firefighter and mm. I was just, you know, I was tough. I didn't need any of that. You know, I knew what I was getting into. Like, I know I'm <laughs> going to see bad stuff. Like, I, you know, you can't hurt me. You can't, I mean, I'm tough. I'm a man. Yeah. Right? And then <clears throat> you you go on uh, a series of bad calls and you start going, oh man, like how, how is this going to affect me? Like when you can't get those images out of your head. Right. What, um, and who do you have to talk to? You know, I'm awfully glad that things are changing. When your dad was in, it was, you know, suck it up. If you can't deal with it, you don't belong here. As a chaplain and part of the CISM team, you do like after action reviews, after you, you have an, uh, after you have an after action uh, with- A debrief or a diffusing. Right. Yeah. yeah. We were talking about how that's part of the self-care for, for chaplains and the CISM team. Right. And, you know, out in the field on, on rather, you know, if it's a, a multi-unit call, uh, just in, in my experience, when it's a larger call, you do an after action review or a tailboard critique, that kind of thing. And it's not always possible when you're going from one call to the next call to the next call. Um, you, can, you can go from working a code on an infant to working an extrication with a multi-vehicle auto accident. Right. Um, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from experience on that where you don't even have time to process the one call and you're on another one. And it, it just, uh, it can build up. It sure can. You know, I mean, we do do training uh, at least the department I was with, we would do training, but it is so important to, to actually talk with the people that you work with uh, about the calls. And I mean, some people 
may find uh, one call more troubling than another. And, right. and I, I feel like there are, there are company officers and chief officers that minimize things mm -hmm. and then others that are really astute at recognizing uh, recognizing in their people that they may, may need to talk to someone. Right. Um, and I feel like that is uh, really just one of the signs of a good leader, knowing your people. Right, right. So one thing I want to make note of is that the CISM work isn't a review at all in terms of, uh, you know, how did, how did you, what did you do on the call? Was it right or wrong? Um, there, there's none of that in the CISM. But in terms, yeah, of different people reacting differently, it, it's all over the place. And a good leader is one who knows his or her team is proactive in dealing with situations. Um, you know, training for how do you be resilient, but then also, geez, we've had, we had this crazy call. I'm not going to wait and see how people are doing. I'm going to start now and schedule, you know, get the debrief going. When someone knows their team really well, they can tell when someone is impacted. And that's important for those times where it may be a rather simple, not that any call is really simple, but not one of those high intensity traumatic events. Could be just the trigger that sends somebody back to what was very traumatic for them. And so although the current event might be tiny, their reaction is huge because it's bringing so much more up. And if you know your team, you can hopefully recognize that and, and work with the person. What inspired you to write uh, your book, Tossed Pebbles? And I don't know that we touched on what the inspiration was for your book, though. You, for that you, one or for Game Changers? Well, for that one. For the Tossed Pebbles. The inspiration. I've been through a lot of grief myself and have found that it's a pretty isolative world. You know, you've got a lot of people coming and supporting you that first week, maybe two weeks after after you've experienced a death of a loved one. And after that, everything is kind of, everyone goes back to work, everyone else's life is going on the same as it had been, but it's not like that at all for you. So I've worked hard on looking at what are the ways I can support those people who are alone. Some of it is your typical traditional grief support group, and, and those are helpful, but we also came across this COVID-19 time when grief was so much different, right? We weren't only grieving the loss of someone we loved, we were grieving jobs, life as we knew it, a whole lot of things. So the book was um, to have something more in front of someone, to dig even, even deeper. I try and remember that everyone learns differently, takes information in differently. We have visual people, audio, audio people, tactile, right? And the book was a means to be um, some of all of it, but the key piece for me was bringing in the artwork that hopefully um, speaks to people and the journaling questions being 
not just something that you read, but intentionally put some thought into. I think very often we, in addition to the loneliness, because the world has gone back to how they were, uh, we put pressure on ourselves to do the same. We don't take time to be in the grief. And when we do that, when you ignore the grief or push it aside, it's going to come back to bite you. So again, this is a piece to be intentional about sitting in the midst of it. Something that you said about you know, the first week or so after you've experienced a loss, everybody's there, you know, yeah. trying to support you. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but um, so in 2010, I, I lost my younger brother. And then mm -hmm. a few years after that, my mom passed and uh, almost a year to the day, my grandfather passed. And uh, the, the hardest one for me was my brother. Mm. And, you know, it was just, uh, it had a lot of people. And, and this is something that I didn't get initially. When people don't know what to say, sometimes they say some stupid things. And when you're grieving, it's real easy to get angry at that person when they, they mean well. Maybe people listening, if they have never been there and they, have, they haven't lost anyone, when they try and show up for somebody else that has lost someone, Sometimes it's best just to tell them, you know, I really don't know what to say. Um, I just wanted to show up for you. Absolutely. That is the best thing that you can say to someone. Yeah. Because I remember getting very angry at people and <laughs> like <laughs> cutting them out of my life like right then and there uh so it's uh it's interesting that after that i actually became a lot more empathetic uh on calls when people had lost somebody mm -hmm. but but it also opened up a part of me that allowed for a lot more grief to be taken in and mm -hmm. uh, it added up real quick. Um, and wow. yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things that I don't think uh, we do enough in the fire service or even in law enforcement to um, prepare our people for those things. Very true, mm. very true. In, in your experience, what are, some, what are some valuable things to say to somebody that has either lost somebody or is in a bad place because they've had that call that seemingly tips them uh, past, past the point of being able to deal with it themselves. And, and, and I, I wanna clarify that because, you know, I think some people feel like there's one or two calls that is the, you know, I was good up until this point, but no, it is a, a cumulative mm -hmm. thing. And if we don't recognize what, what those calls can do to us over time, Right. It may seem like, oh, you know, I'm good. I just leave it. I leave yeah. work at work. No. One of the questions um, that I ask folks is, if your significant other were here right now, 
how would they say you're doing? What would they notice is different about you since the call? And that, that piece of looking at it from another person's perspective can at times have someone say, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. She probably would say that I am drinking twice as many beers at night or I'm not sleeping. And I say to people, be, you know, it's okay to, to feel broken. Right. It's okay to feel like it, it's you just can't do it anymore. And then what do we do so that you can? I, I try. I try to just be a presence where people can say whatever is on their mind. And that's one of the things that. For someone who is a first responder chaplain, people who are going to talk to him or her don't feel like you've got to, you know close the book on all the four letter words, right? We're in there with you. We're in the dirt and the dank and the suck of it all. And I try and let people know, you know, say it. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Let it out. Uh, the verbal diarrhea, I sometimes call it, right? The, when you get it out, you start to feel better. Since beginning this conversation with you, I've, I've thought back to... You know, I, I worked in some of the, the roughest parts of town um, in Central Florida, mm. uh, the, the, busiest, the busiest stations, because that's where all the action is. That's where you're most likely to get the, the really intense calls, um, you, where you're most likely to uh, fight fire, you know, do extrications uh you know there's a lot of trauma in low income areas and and you can you can do a lot of good um you know there's you know most departments have their retirement station where you can go and kick back and relax um on occasion i might work some overtime at one of those stations but it was like uh, rarely would we not get some rough call when I went out to those stations. They'd be like, oh my gosh, man, you're bringing this stuff with you. <laughs> uh, running those calls, like early on in my career, you know, just that thinking that I needed to show up and be tough and pretend like stuff didn't bother me. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I remember early on in my career after um, we had uh, a, a, the death of an infant, um, had an 18-year-old kid on a motorcycle, um, just really gory scene, um, and uh, very shortly after that, uh, a 12-year-old girl got hit by a car when she was running across the street to her bus stop. And after that call, uh, you know, it was right before shift change, went back to the station and my crew, they were like ready to go. So they're doing their pass on. And I, I sat down at the table in the, in the bay and was asking these old timers, you know, like you guys have been doing this for a long time. I'm sure you've seen this kind of stuff like throughout your career. Does it ever, does it ever get to you? And this guy never forget. I, I'm not going to say his name, but you know, he made an impact and he wasn't around too much longer after that he retired, but the impact that he had on my career with this one response, uh, I believe that things could have been different. Um, <laughs> he was like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. You hear this shit? Like, hey, hey, 
let me let me give you some advice right now. Why don't you go fill out an application for Home Depot? Because this clearly isn't the job for you. Right. And I was yeah. like, like, uh, no, I'm like, I was just thinking about you guys that have been doing this for so yeah. long. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm good. And I never said another word for like 20 years. And yeah. And man, I just, I, I look back at, there was times when I was a chief officer and, you know, you, you put on your game face, you do your job, um, you handle things. And then when everybody goes back to the station, I've had lieutenants come and go, hey, chief, you doing okay? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, why? Like, I don't know. You just seem a little bit distant. Mm-hmm. and I'm like no no I'm good and not even like really recognizing it in myself right um and then you know and I've talked about it before on here uh being diagnosed with PTSD and uh, you know it was like past the point of um really being able to get back to who I once was. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, talking, you know, like right now, I guess I'm talking to the, the leaders in the fire service and the new guys and girls mm -hmm. you know, that are coming in. You know, look out for one another. Right. Um, you know, and, and don't be so proud that you don't get the help that you need and get it early enough where, you know, maybe you won't uh, destroy your marriage or. <laughs> right, right, yes. And I think that, I think it's so slow, frustratingly slow, but I think the perspective is changing out there. Um, that, you know, you can't ask for help. It doesn't mean you can't do the job. If anything, and I, I use an analogy of don't let the well run dry, right? You and I both are in a field where we give and we give and we give. Well, if you keep scooping the water out of the well and nothing fills it back up, right? That well's not gonna serve you well anymore. So how do you fill your well? Uh, and, you know, you mentioned others coming to you and saying, how are you doing? And putting on the, the bravado. And I would encourage the person who's asking the question of someone, don't leave it there. Don't let the person get off the hook so easily. If you see something that's it's different. It's not them. If there was something uh, that you could do to impact this side of the fire service, what would you do? It's an interesting question. I would love to find a way to make it acceptable across the board to bring in a CISM team to reach out to a peer and say, you know, I just got to talk to, to say, you know, I'm, I'm broken PTSD. Help me get back to who I was and let that be okay. Right. I, I've seen too many amazing firefighters, EMS workers, walk away from the job because they didn't get the support that they needed. They couldn't ask for it. Yet had they, they'd still be out there on the job. And how can we make it so we don't lose the really good people? This is one thing that, uh, like when I finally did start trying to get help, um, 
Yeah, it's a large department, a lot of resources, EAP program, you know, employee assistance program. Um, and I would imagine that, um, you know, the people listening would, uh, would be right there with me and saying that most EAP programs are bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times sit down with somebody and go, man, I'm in the wrong place. Like you got no business asking me questions, buddy. Right. Right. Cause a lot of them just aren't trained mm -hmm. to be in the space of, of the difficulties that the you're likely to share. Yeah. I mean, I've had counselors. It was almost like they were fascinated with uh, the job and wanted to hear the gory details. And it was just like, go pound sand, you know, like, and that'll put a bad taste in, in your mouth. Like it, it That's just, right. um, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, like, there are so many good resources out there. Yes. It, it took me a while to, to find them, but like, if, if you do your due diligence or even like, I, I have a bunch of resources on my website, you know, uh, <laughs> you could go to the resources page of my website in the, for the fire service. There's um, a lot of resources there. And then even for veterans, I've put a lot of links to, to resources for veterans and, and nonprofits. There's a lot of nonprofits out there that cater to first responders and veterans uh, with PTSD. Mm -hmm. There's organizations out there that will donate uh, PTSD service, service dogs, like trained, ready to go to yes. a qualifying veteran or first responder. Uh, my dog, right. my dog, I, I went to Texas. Um, I was linked up with this group in Texas. Um, just amazing. Uh, you know, didn't have to pay anything and got this amazing dog. And, you know, it's just, and I would say that if you live in a part of the country where resources are scarce, connect with me, or, I mean, I'm sure you know of resources, but uh, I, I'll speak for myself. If you're struggling to find resources, contact me through my website or through social media and, and I'll yeah. help you. Yep. Because uh, there's, I mean, there's even Facebook groups out there um, that, that will help put people in touch with resources wherever they're at. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the resources that are out there other than your EAP and, and those maintain a different level of confidentiality, right? And, and I know how crucial that is. With CISM teams, mm -hmm. I've been exposed to teams all around the Southeast mm -hmm. and I've talked to, you know, firefighters from different fire departments and whoever is running the, uh, the team in whichever region or for whatever department, got to be really careful on who you select. Um, it's, uh, because it can really turn people off if you yes. pick the wrong wrong person. Absolutely. Um, and you kind of want to have somebody that's been around for a little bit, you know, that has some street cred. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, it it uh, it works a whole lot better that way. It does. And going through the process 
it was created and worked on to be effective. And I think a lot of the CIA, I don't want to say a lot, there are some CISM teams who don't go through that process and give it a bad name or can be detrimental. The heart's in the right place, but it's not happening. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the other book that you, you wrote and uh, just the game changer volume six yes yeah what um you know what is what is this book about and what was your contribution to it and and what was your inspiration for for that yeah uh it's a book about written by people who have experienced a major crisis trauma upheaval and have come through to the other side and have made something um, not necessarily of it, but have overcome that, that, that that event changed their life. My inspiration was on several levels. I'm in a mastermind group. And so it was, it's part of, uh, they do one every year. So I was invited to participate. But the process of taking what for me was an event that nearly destroyed me, nearly destroyed me, um, giving it voice was incredibly healing. It, it was a story that involved my biological family and to put it out there in the world was one of the most powerful moments to say, all right, you don't have control over me anymore. Um, I'm sharing this with the world and it's okay. And then the, the whole process of writing my chapter and, and pulling all that together and taking the time to look at who have I become because of this event, right? I wouldn't be here today as the person I am had I not experienced that and, and not just experienced it, but then dug into it to try and heal from it. So it's a powerful story for those of us who write, um, but then inspiration, we hope for the people who read it. On occasion, I'll have the opportunity to interview somebody like you that has a powerful story like that, um, where without even really giving any detail, just listening to you, mm. I think people can recognize that you've been there in that place of brokenness where maybe you, at, when you were in it, you couldn't really see how you were going to pull through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been there, um, you know, when you you consider you know uh, a final solution for a temporary problem you know and in there <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and and so for the, the people listening like uh, you know i i've had i've received messages uh, received some emails um but yeah i've received some messages through through social media where people that have listened to this program for just by chance happened upon this, this podcast and right at the right time where they were like ready to, ready to end things. And then just this message of hope, like, you know, this isn't it. 
no matter right. where you're at, what kind of dark hole you found yourself in, even if it was like by your own poor decisions that yeah. you've seemingly destroyed your life, it's not the final chapter. Right. Like you can, given, given the right amount of time, not only will you be able to overcome the situation, but you can help other people um, through their dark time. Right. And Phoenix rising from the ashes. But it, it's, it's so powerful. And it is such an amazing feeling to, to be able to share your story with somebody and have it make a difference. Oh, yes. If writing that story and putting it out there in the world can save one person, I'll be glad. In this moment right now, mm -hmm. is there anything that, uh, that you feel compelled to share with the people listening? Don't give up. You're too important. You matter. You count. You're valuable and we need you. Reach out to Dave's website. Reach out to all the resources he's got listed there and wherever else you need to, but don't give up. We're here for you. And we need you. You know, I, I know that I was thinking this question, but I don't believe I asked it. What, what led you to becoming a, a minister? <laughs> wow. Um, when I was in high school, you know, those aptitude tests, and it says these are the careers that, that would fit for you. I did that and it, and it said uh, a forest ranger. I was like, yes, that so resonated with me. I ran home and I told my mother and she said, yeah, no, uh, you're, you're gonna be a secretary and that's it. So I was a secretary and I found myself being a secretary at a church. Um, was bringing my kids there because it's what you are supposed to be doing, right? Raise your kids in the faith. But I, yeah, the pastor at the church was the first person ever to tell me that I could be and do anything I wanted. And he also challenged me in a whole lot of ways that my faith took root and then took wings. I, I outgrew the job. I went to another uh, larger setting, faith setting. And when I gave my notice to the board of deacons at my church, I'll never forget the, this older gentleman, Harold, he jumped up and he ran over and he gave me this great big hug. And he said, I'm so excited. You're going to make an amazing minister. It's about time you go to seminary. And I said, uh, what? I didn't say that was what I was doing. But there were affirmations of that. And it took, it was, was some time. But as I thought about that, I said, yeah, gee, there are. I can see myself doing this. You know, I, I learned that, and this is probably one of the biggest pieces. Um, someone had come in the church one day during the week looking for the pastor who wasn't there. And I said, sit down, hang out with me if you want. You know, we can chat. And we just chatted about, I don't even know what we chatted about. But at this point, when that deacon had said that, one of the other pastors in the church shared with me that this woman had been on her way to commit suicide. And my conversation with her stopped that. And I just, wow. You know, that wasn't me. That was, that was, that was God. 
right? And and wanting to wanting to be living that in a much greater way. I had a couple of friends that, that are still with the department um, that I left. And um, I used to do this workshop for uh, new recruits, mm -hmm. basically uh, empowering them with this mindset of leadership that on their first day, you know, people are viewing them when they see them in that uniform, they'll follow them. They'll trust them. They have an obligation to live up to that. Yeah. And, and I told some stories and, you know, just gave, gave some encouraging words that, that kind of deal. Um, and this, this one guy who ended up in the same CISM training that I, I was in as a chief officer. So this is when I was a lieutenant, I spoke to his recruit class. So years later, I'm a chief officer going through the CISM program. Um, and uh, this individual is in that class and hadn't seen him in a while. And he came up and he was like, hey, you know, I wanted to tell you that that story you told, uh, I, I still use that story today. Right. And, um, and now he went on, he became ordained and, and he not only is a, a firefighter, but he uh, works in the chaplaincy um, and, you know, not, not only does he do his regular job, but on his days off, he responds to calls to, to yeah. be an on-call chaplain. And I just, it's uh, really cool. And, mm. and it's interesting because like this uh, story, I even put the, the story in my book. Um, and it, it's just a parable, uh, like a, it's a ancient Chinese parable but I, I want to say that's it comes from China, but I'll, I'll share it because maybe somebody listening will will be able to use it in their life or help somebody else. So there's this uh, this farmer. Um, it's just him and his son, and they have a horse that they use to plow the field for growing their vegetables. And then they use that same horse to uh, haul the wagon into town so they can sell their vegetables. Well, one day the horse gets out of the corral, runs away. And it's like, oh man, and the, the local villagers, they hear of this and they go to the farmer and they're like, oh, you know, we're so sorry for your loss. We know, you know how important that horse was to, to your farm. He's like, oh, who's to say if it's good or bad? And they're like, what? Like, it's bad. Like, and he's like, well, who's to say if it's good or if it's bad? And uh, they're like, oh, this is interesting. He doesn't seem to be bothered by this loss. And they leave. And uh, about a week later, the horse returns with a bunch of wild Mustangs. Uh, and now he's got you know, 20-something horses, uh, beautiful horses, they put in the corral and uh, villagers come and they're like, oh, wow, you know, what a, what a windfall for you. You're so lucky. You know, how did you know? And he's like, well, you know, who, who's to say if it's good or if it's bad? And they're like, what are you talking about? You've got all these horses now. You're the wealthiest farmer around. And he's like, no, I don't know. Who's to say if it's good or if it's bad? You know, I'm just going to keep on plugging away the way I've always done. And they're yep. like, wow, I don't know what's with this guy. And right. uh, so they go on about their business and uh, the son is helping his father um, break these, these wild horses. And the son gets bucked off and ends up with this horrendous uh, leg fracture where it's clear he's, he's maimed. He'll never be able to walk again without, without crutches. And um, 
you know, the villagers come and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, what, what poor fortune, how did you know something bad was going to happen? And he's like, you know, who's to say if it's good or if it's bad? And they're like, what in the world is with this farmer? And they, they leave and uh, not a month later, you know, the, the sun is still recovering. Um, it's clear that, you know, his leg is, is just useless now. And, uh, and the army comes to town uh, to, you know, conscript the, the, the young men for, for a war that's raging on, on the border. So uh, they take all the, the able-bodied men in, in the village and go, and it's certainly a death sentence. And uh, the farmer is able to keep his son and they're like, oh, wow, what, how did you know? What great fortune. And he's like, well, who's to say if it's good or if it's bad? And it goes on and on like that. Mm. You know, you never know. Right. It's just, if you're given, you know, good fortune, you know, just keep on living your life, be grateful, but also be able to see the good in what seemingly might be bad. And, um, you know, we, there, there, I, I feel like there's seasons in our life, you know, and, you know, we, we go through some rough times, but we don't know what that, what that is preparing us for. Right. Yeah. So very true. Lee, I am so thankful for, for, being able to have you on and, and have this conversation. Um, I know that there's at least one person out there. I mean, I'm sure there's more than just one, but I think this was a conversation that needed to be had. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I just really appreciate your time and, oh. and, your, and your wisdom. And thank you. An honor to be with you and uh, all the best to your listeners. Yeah, and, and for the listeners, anybody listening that might want to get in contact with you, connect with you, or, or purchase one of your books or both of your books, what's the best way to connect with you? Uh, my website is coachrev.com. So coach like a soccer coach, Rev short for reverend. And my contact info is on there. And, and some of the things that you coach with, we touched on it a little bit, but the, the coaching somebody through uh, loss or grief, who is your ideal client? Uh, someone who um, there, there's the two pieces there's the before you die and you've gotten your terminal diagnosis or you know the end is nearing um, an ideal client in that world is someone who wants to I use the phrase live their dying Right. Instead of just throwing in the towel and waiting for it to happen, someone who wants to um, make the most of the time that they have left. And that's not just make the most in terms of your bucket list, but um, getting to a place where when you do die, you're able to die pain-free and that's spiritual, emotional, and physical pain. Uh, and for grief, you know, people who have experienced a loss of any kind. So in the grief work that I do, I don't limit it to if you have had a loved one die, if your pet has died, if you've lost your home to a fire or a flood or a tornado, uh, any number of losses. Thank you for, for the work that you're doing. It's definitely needed. Um, I really appreciate you. Thank you. And I, you, I love that you're doing this podcast.
Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.